welcome to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Hope that you're staying safe and healthy and cool and dry because there's heat waves, there's downpours, there's all sorts of stuff happening. It's hard to believe we're already 21 episodes in. I hope you're enjoying the episodes of the podcast you've heard thus far. I would appreciate if you gave feedback on this particular episode, previous episodes, or the podcast in general by leaving a rating or comment on whatever platform you're using to listen. Also, feel free to follow me on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph, and we now have a monthly newsletter. The first one went out just a little while ago, if you're listening to this uh, as a first-run podcast. It went out on August 3rd, let's just say that. If you want to sign up for the newsletter going forward, you can do so at tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. That is tinyurl.com slash detoxpod. As I was reviewing my inventory of episodes, I knew that last week's episode with author and educator Kevin Patterson had to run back-to-back with this particular episode, if only for the fact that I met this show's guest, Ryan Bentham, through the same channels in which I met Kevin. Much like Kevin, Ryan is a sex and relationship educator. As the prof, Ryan, along with his wife Ginger, is a co-host of two podcasts, Life on the Swing Set and their own podcast called Intellectual Foreplay. Uh, The Life on the Swing Set podcast uh, also has Dylan Thomas, who was a guest on one of the earlier episodes of Detoxicity. As with my previous guests who work in the sex and alternative relationship space, there's much more to Ryan than those two podcasts. Ryan and Ginger are the parents of two young adult men, and we talk a lot about raising those children to be aware and empathetic people, especially in light of current events. Ryan also discusses how to be present as a male partner, intentional communication, and his own personal evolution, an evolution that weathered a major storm a few years ago when Ryan suffered a traumatic brain injury. I am proud to welcome Ryan Bentham to the show. Hi, my name is Ryan Bentham. And Mike, I'm looking forward to our conversation today and really exploring a lot of different types of topics. I'm particularly passionate about the work that I do with my partner, um, Ginger, and we are in a multi-partnered relationship. And by work, um, I'm going to use that in air quotes because we work in sex and sexuality and it looks a lot of different ways, but um, it allows us the opportunity to travel and be part of the Life on the Swing Set community um, like we did when we met you at Playground at the conference in Toronto. And that is part of our regular experience to be able to travel and provide some education and meet with people across the country and be part of this wonderful, inclusive Life on the Swing Set community um, that also includes Ginger and I um, being part of the co-hosts of the Life on the Swing Set. Ginger has been involved really since the beginning, and I've been involved um, since the beginning as well, but much more consistently recently. We also do our own podcast, which is more of a voyeur-oriented podcast. People kind of listening in to Ginger and my conversations about how we think about our relationships, things that come up for us, and we openly process that and share that with the world on intellectual foreplay. Um, So folks can find that anywhere where they download their favorite podcasts. And we also are lucky enough to be able to host an annual trip to Desire Resort in the Riviera Maya in Mexico that typically happens in November. Um, This year's trip has been canceled, of course, because of the coronavirus and wanting to make sure that everybody stays super safe. But we're very interested and know that we will have more opportunities to host swing setters from across the world and to do traveling and to continue to do the work that we're passionate about doing in helping people feel fulfilled in their relationships and really understand how to connect with one another. So that is very much a passion of mine. Um, By way of background, um, Ginger and I also have children together. So I very much identify in my role of being a father presence to my kids. Um, We have two boys and that's very important to me. Um, I have also survived Um, five different ischemic strokes. So I've had a brain injury and carried that life experience with me. And I'm very passionate about talking about how that has transformed my life and what I've taken out of that from an experience. So I look forward to sharing that with you um, today as well, Mike. And then finally, um, 
About 10 years ago, I completed an Ironman triathlon, and I do not identify as being a great athlete. I would identify as being a very stubborn athlete. And so that is another set of experiences that we may get into chatting about today. And I would love to share any of those life lessons and perspectives of being able to go through the preparation of that um, for that event and to really reflect upon it now that it's been about a decade since I completed it and how also that has contributed to my life and my identity as a man in this world. It's been a tremendous time as a father to be in the space of having two teenage boys going through the, the, the experiences that are happening right now. <clears throat> and I use that very globally because both of our boys are very conscious around, you know, what's happened. And like, you know, again, as a 16 year old and a 19 year old to be in these very formative places, to be in isolation with your family, and then to feel all of that, seeing the police brutality. And he's like, this is not new. And I can't believe I live in a place where this happens. Right. And how do you, you know, how do you respond to that as a parent or as a person? You're like, you know what? You are absolutely right. And as a 19 year old, that passion and that, that drive to be like, this is bullshit is like coming through loud and clear. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And we've been able to have all of these throughout the entire shelter in place experience these impromptu conversations that I would have never had with my college age son, or for, for that matter, my you know junior and high school age son. And I feel a, a different person myself as a result of that. And I know that you know these experiences are giving them what they need on their own personal life paths, and that they have, you know, me and Jin wanting to protect them from feeling any kind of pain or anger or frustration. Of course, as a parent, that's our that's what you want instinct to do. Yeah. is to do that. Yep. And and also at the same time letting it hurt and, and giving them the space to 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 work through it in their own way. And I feel like I have seen, you know, and the last thing that I give to friends is parenting advice, but I've seen a lot of parents really trying to engage with their children in ways that I feel in a quarantine or a shelter in place situation are inappropriate because the kids don't have anywhere to, to go. Right. And when you're trying to force an interaction or trying to interact with them and they don't have anywhere to retreat, then they're going to build a wall. Right. You know, and that's not something that I would ever want to do with my kids is to feel like, they don't have anywhere to hide and then I'm going to come after them. So whenever we have conversations with our kids, it's on their terms. And sometimes it's frustrating because it's not always a lot of information. And then, you know, there are these other times where we're able to just really deeply engage and we know that it's on their terms and that it's what you know, it, they're really asking. They're taking a moment to stop and ask for advice. They're not trying to appease us because you know, it feels better when they talk to us and they know that. So it's, it's like being generated from within as opposed from without, like, you know, doing it for people pleasing versus, you know, I'm really understanding where this is coming from. And this is, you know, these are my emotions. I'm not manufacturing them. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. And I think that's, that's a really important, really important thing to do as a parent, particularly, I think when, when the children are your or, or the age that your kids are is to let them, you know, they're borderline adults at this point. They certainly have their mm -hmm. own, you know, they have their own personalities and they have their own ways of interacting. And I think it's important to not for particularly again with like older teenagers, kids in their, in their early twenties, like not force conversations upon them and also kind of foster a, a relationship that's sort of that's a little bit more equal as opposed to right. like as something that's kind of hierarchical. And I, I, I 
like because I don't come from a place where I have that kind of relationship with my folks. Like it, I, I really appreciate the fact that your kids have that relationship with the two of you, because I think that's yeah. the way it should be. There should be an open like okay. I realize that you have a mind of your own and you have thoughts of your own and you have a way that you like to communicate and let me try to meet you at your place as opposed to always wanting you to meet me at mine. Absolutely. It's, 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 I feel like that is a human thing and I feel like parents can lose sight of the fact that our children are, yes, they're our responsibility, but they're also human and whenever we try to force somebody to meet us where we are, then we're not recognizing them, recognizing them as sovereign beings. And if we really truly care about engaging with them and hearing them and understanding what they have to offer in as a mirror to you know our own growth or whatever it is, then we meet them where they are. And that seems counterintuitive for some reason for some parents and i don't understand why and i again it's kind of the you know the old hierarchical patriarchal way of thinking like you know there needs to be an order of command in our relationship or in right. this family structure right and i need to be as the man at the top of this entire pyramid in order for this to work by convention and that thinking then starts to take the kids and put them into a very subjective place in the hierarchy. Right. And I mean, again, similar to you, I grew up that way and am feeling very grateful for what you just offered and reflected back to me, which is I haven't parented that way. And so much of that is because of what Jen and I have been able to create as a partnership that is a loving foundation for our children. It's a loving foundation for her growth. And it's a loving foundation for my growth. And so, you know, that really is something that is new in my lived experience and has been beautiful in this time of shelter in place. I have a lot of appreciation for that, you know, particularly because sometimes it's hard to unlearn. And I think a lot of what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast is kind of finding the spots where you have actually sort of consciously or unconsciously forced yourself to unlearn things that were taught to you or that you were conditioned to believe as you were growing up that you were, Mm -hmm. you know, that you had to like actually shake off. And I think, you know, certainly most people parent the way that their parents parented and, you know, I, I, parents don't always do things the right way. Yeah. Well, I love that you're creating an opportunity for people to stop and think about, am I following a program that was given to me or am I consciously choosing the way that works best for me in my lived experience as a man? And I love, you know, the other episodes that I listen to because I feel like you do a beautiful job of creating that pause, like that opportunity to stay. You can certainly choose to keep you know, a cycle moving consciously or unconsciously, but you can also choose to take a left turn here and think about things different. Yeah. Do, are there par- parts of your experience that, that where you feel like you've done that yourself? Oh, 100%. I mean, I was, you know, I was raised in a very sort of, there was definitely a hierarchical relationship between, you know, my parents and I, my grandparents and I, because I was alternately raised by my mom and my stepdad and my mom's parents. And it wasn't an environment that fostered communication in any kind of like equal sense. It was always like, you know, we're the elders. You're not. (laughs) You do what we Mm. tell you to do. You're not really Mm -hmm. allowed to have an opinion. So, you know, I've had issues challenging authority. I've had issues, you know, sort of finding my own voice and feeling like my voice has value. You know, I've had issues, you know, with masculinity and especially when you throw blackness and queerness into that, like it just gives you this sort of weird idea of what masculinity is and what it should be and how you factor in it and how you don't factor in it. And it's, it's you know, until you 
really kind of look at yourself and look at the overall picture of what you were taught and how wrong some of it is. Like you don't reach any kind right. of peace internally in, until you rectify all that stuff within yourself. Mm. So it's Absolutely. been, particularly the last 10 years, it's really been a lot of picking out things and behaviors and ideas and attitudes and saying to myself, Oh, well, that's not, that's not right. That doesn't work. Let's, uh, mm. right. let's take a hard left here and do things a different way and see how that works out. What's your process for that? Like, is that like a deep gut intuition that you just like overwhelms you or is it, does it feel more subtle? Like, because in my body, I'm starting to feel like I'm able to tune into that more as it relates to, Oh yeah, I can appreciate right now that my intuition is pushing me in this direction and my ego may be wanting me to go in a different direction, but I'm going to follow my heart in this, in this sense. Do you have a different process or something similar? I think it's, it's subtle. There are, and I'm fortunate to have people that call some of these things out for me or to me. And then there are other things that I just kind of figure out as an observer of people sitting around a group of people and and watching and listening to their interactions. And, you know, I mean, therapy has been an unbelievable help just sort of dealing with dealing with things like forgiveness or, you know, even kind of playing with my, you know, with my own masculinity a little bit. Like, hey, this is kind of a, a silly thing. Like, over, since the quarantine started, like, I was like, you know what, I'm going to paint my toenails. And years ago, I'd have been like, dude, that's kind of, you know. Right, right. I was like, I was like, let's do it and kind of see what happens. And it's huh? kind of like, okay, well, this isn't, you're still the same, you were the same person after that you were before. You know, and kind of sadly, it took like seeing one of my straight friends walking around with painted fingernails. And I was kind of like, oh, well, if he can do it, well, what the fuck is my problem? You know? Right, right, right. So it's, it's, uh, you know, some of it is observing, you know, whether it's person to person observing or reading or whatever it is. And some of it is, is just kind of like feeling a certain way inside and being able to come to terms with it and then kind of express that outwards. Right. Right. Kind of figure out where the dissonance is happening. But I love what you share because Ginger also always reminds me that we have people in our lives, whether they are overtly this way or subtly this way, but the people in our lives are there to provide us uh, a mirror or a message as it relates to an opportunity for our growth. And that's, you know, it just resonated so much, Mike, with what you were sharing because we can look at these experiences through the lens of, you know, I'm just going to dismiss it and whatever this nagging feeling is that doesn't, you know, doesn't resonate with me, I'm just going to let it go or I'm going to bury it down and I'm stuff it. And then, you know, it'll come out years later, of course, when we're in therapy talking about it, Mm -hmm. but you know, as men, that's, and I don't, I'm not a victim to it, but that's how we have been taught to deal with our emotions right? Like we stuff everything down and pretend that it didn't exist and move on and be stoic. And I've been having a very different experience in the shelter in place as it relates to being able to be with feeling and also let it go so that it doesn't feel like it's getting like stopped up. And I don't feel like agitated, angry, or frustrated or volatile. And you know, that I feel like that I shared on the swing set the other day that that has a lot to do with now a little bit over a year long's worth of meditation practice that I've been cultivating on a daily basis. So it was like a commitment to myself to say, you know, for 30 minutes a day, I'm going to sit in some kind of form of meditation. And the science is so damn strong about how good it is for our brains. And, you know, bring, being a survivor of strokes, I'm like, I'm going to do whatever I can do for my brain. Like whatever is going to make this thing up here work better so that my body actually starts to work better. You know, I'm going to do that. And, you know, we are not living in a world where brains are static. Like we thought they were before. Right. So if meditation is one of those things that I can do to juice my brain and help it grow and expand in every possible way, like as a brain injury survivor, 
like, you know, if you're not doing everything you can do to maximize your brain, then that makes me just very sad because when you've had a brain injury and you're compromised in some ways, you're like, damn, I wish I could like keep my train of thought. Damn. I really wish I could name more than three colors in a row. And this is a true story, Mike. So in my very first speech therapy session, I, my speech therapist, and it's a little bit of a misnomer. Like I did have difficulty speaking, but you know, speech therapy is as much about helping your brain recover cognitively, which can you know manifest in some ways through impaired speech after having had a brain injury. But it's also about how your brain functions and how it organizes the information. And so, like with my brain injury, I had a lot of difficulty because I would like get stuck in kind of like a mini loop. You know, so if you've been involved, if you've ever had like thinking like anxiety oriented thinking where you're in a loop, I'd be in like a mini loop and I like nothing would come like my entire mind would go blank. Wow. So my speech therapist asked me to name as many colors as I could in a row in 30 seconds. And I got to three. And basically I was like, after that, I couldn't think of a fourth color. Like when your brain is not working at that level, it's pretty fucking scary. Right. So I, and I know this is a huge long backstory, but it's my like bully pulpit right now on your show, but to say, you know, when we have the opportunity to optimize our brains, please do it. And meditation is one of those most important things that we can do. And Ginger told me for years and years and years about how beneficial meditation would be for me. And I ignored every bit of it. And I was on the hamster wheel running harder and harder and literally running further and further, you know, running a business, starting a new business and doing an Ironman and all of these things. Like my life was full. Our lives were full and I loved every moment of it. But at the same time, I wasn't taking care of myself. And so, you know, 2016 happened out of nowhere, this you know, person who looks like it's all together with on the inside, the accumulation of that stress had a consequence in my body right. and it triggered a rare vascular disease that I have. Now th- there's bad luck there, of course. So, you know, not everybody has that trigger, thankfully. And that's what led to my strokes as in a healthy 43 year old person out of nowhere. And I was in the hospital I was in the hospital actually two weeks before I had my first full stroke because I had stroke-like symptoms. Okay. And they're like, dude, you're just stressed out. Like you're having like stress-induced migraine symptoms. And I was like, I doesn't does not feel like stress. And I get it. Like, you know, again, like I had conditioned myself to a level of stress that I had normalized probably a very high level of stress. So anyways, the, the diagnosis was wrong. I, in fact, had a, what were called transient ischemic attacks or TIAs, mini strokes they're often mm-hmm. called. So you kind of have the symptoms and then they fade after a period of time. It's your, early, your body's early warning system. So I was in the hospital two weeks before I actually had my first full stroke. And then when I was admitted to the hospital, I had a stroke and they did medical therapy, you know, so they were trying to figure out like why I was having strokes, like they didn't know. And so they're thinning my blood and doing all these kind of things. And then in the, in the course of doing some other tests, they did a, what's called an angiography, angiogram. Okay. So it's angiography. So basically they, they shoot a dye into my brain and take x-rays of it as they watch the dye, like move through your brain so they can see where your blood vessels are. Well, they went to go do that and the doctor went to go shoot the dye into my brain. And all I felt was a deep burning sensation, but behind my right eye. Okay. Because my carotid artery was actually fully occluded. So it took all this chemical that was supposed to go into my brain vessels. so They could see where my blood was flowing and it shot it all into the back of my eye. And that was when they realized like what, was underlying my problem and my, my carotid artery is completely occluded on my right side. So the fix to it was to take a blood vessel out of my forehead and open up a hole in behind my ear here 
and replummet back in. So that's what the doctor did that essentially saved my life. Because between the time where they knew what my problem was and when I could actually have surgery because I had all these blood thinners and they couldn't do surgery when my blood was that thin, I had four more strokes just as I was waiting in the hospital. So I had five strokes total and each one kind of took its you know toll. Coming back to my point, not to again, belabor it too long, Mike, but the whole, you know, brain orientation and science is, has changed so much in the past number of years. And I'm so grateful. I know it sounds weird, but I'm grateful to have had my strokes when I did, because it is hope for me to be able to use tools like meditation, nutrition, and other things to rebuild my brain and obviously have enough you know, brain cells working and firing together now to keep thoughts together, to live my life, you know, a life that I feel is deeply of purpose with my partner and with my family, as we were talking about before, and to contribute in my unique ways. And I mean, again, I feel very, very grateful to have had this experience because it did truly change me off of this life path that felt awesome, you know, felt energizing, but was not healthy for me. And it was a left turn that was involuntary. And so, you know, instead of driving straight into a wall at 90 miles per hour, and then, you know, picking up the pieces and saying, oh, maybe I should have turned left here. You know, I love, again, coming back to what you were doing before in terms of creating opportunities for us to say, you know, are we living lives that are sustainable for us? Are we living our best life? And are we chasing things that seem important to us, but, you know, are really kind of buying into something that's also undermining us? And, you know, I don't, I don't answer those questions for people that are still in, you know, high adrenaline oriented jobs, like, everybody gets to make that choice and everybody gets to deal with it the way they want to. And my life experience doesn't mean that, you know, everybody needs to do it my way. And so I, I just, again, kind of offer all of that through the lens of you know, looking for the left turns when you can make them to stay on your journey. That's super important. And, you know, Fortunately, you survived. I mean, I, it's hard to believe. And granted, I didn't know you prior to the strokes, but, you know, to experience you and to see you and to talk to you and to know you after that, it's so difficult to believe that you went through that from a physically like looking at you and, 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 you know, from that way, it's hard to, to imagine that you at such a young age experienced that. When, when was playground two when years two and a half years ago it was 2018 okay yeah so, so that was yeah. about about two and a half years after my strokes yeah so i was you know a very different per- i can think back to that time and feel like i was a very different person and still you know very much honor what you say as it relates to not having the sense that you know I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that I was broken or that something bad had happened to me. Right. Something that can be debil, you know, that can be debilitating has happened to you. Cause you know, again, like my experiences with you, if I didn't know, it would have just been like, Oh, well, here's this healthy, you know, kind of upbeat, hot. Yes. <laughs> Handsome, <laughs> you know, sexy guy. But yeah, to know that you've had that experience and that you've processed it and, you know, have such a, you know, an appreciation for the world around you and an appreciation for people. And, you know, you're such a warm person. You know, it's really, it's, it's really beautiful to see. You're not, you don't appear to be bitter. And I think a lot of people may have had an experience like that and, you know, been embittered by it and you don't seem embittered by it at all. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I really honor that. And I don't wish it on anybody. It was a horrific experience and, you know, to have looked over the edge effectively 
you know, it, 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 it's not something that I would want people to do. And, you know, I do, again, I come back to in my life, I had signs, like I had warnings. I had, I had sign guide signposts along the way that I chose not to look at. One of them, again, being my partner of over 20 plus years saying, Hey, you know, meditate, have a practice where you unplug for a period of time and decompress your nervous system, you know, let your body reset because, you know, what the science tells us and what I didn't learn or feel at the time is that when our bodies are in fight or flight, it's not a time for us to regenerate. And so when we live years and years and years on this adrenaline in this high state of alert, we're not feeding ourselves, you know, again, to kind of go back to the saber tooth tiger example, you know, if you need to run away from the saber tooth tiger, it's not a good time to sit in meditation and try to, <laughs> you know, feel into how you can evolve as a human in this world and develop you know, additional compassion for others. You know, so we need to be able to, I needed to be able to literally live in an intensive care unit for 30 days to peer over the edge and say, that's not what the path that I wanted to be on. And, you know, I did this now and, you know, this is my life experience now. And you know what, like this many years later, four years later, my left hand still does not work very well. And I talked actually on the swing set in an episode with Dylan about it. And I have a lot of privilege because I am still a healthy looking person. I can pass as a person and as a person of complete ability. And it's opened my eyes a lot to ableism and how people really do bring in this perspective that if you present a certain way, then you have certain capabilities. And, you know, and if, and if that doesn't work for you, then, you know, you should just do this or that or the other thing, like insert dots. And so, and it's crazy. And again, it's not my, I don't feel it like I need to step into a role where that is my mantle because the part that I know that resonates with me and there are you know, a lot of people who do that work very passionately in terms of advocating for people with disabilities. And it's, it's, I know that's not part of my personal life purpose. Let me say that, but I have this insight now again, into a lived experience for the last four years that is the equivalent of, you know, if I could describe it to somebody that's not seen me moving about I have about as much use of my left hand as if you would, if you were wearing an oven mitt. Okay. So if you, if you, if you kind of duct taped an oven mitt to your left hand for a day, went about your world, that's pretty equivalent to like what my experience is like. And again, that's not, it's just from a relatability perspective. Sure. That's not from any kind of like poor me perspective. That's a way to think about how much function I have in my hand. So you know, it's, it's a pain in the ass. And yeah, I could be day in and day out thinking about the pain in the ass that it is and how it keeps me from doing a lot of things in my life that I previously enjoyed doing. And I could wallow and swim in that for as long as I wanted to. And what I have chosen to do, Mike, and really appreciate you reflecting back this to me and saying that you acknowledge it, is I've chosen to accept that I can only really orient myself towards one thing, and that is my state of mind. Like that is what I can choose. And you know what? From a brain chemistry perspective, our bodies don't know any differently between what's actually happening in the quote unquote real world and how we perceive it. Okay. So, you know, if we create ex an experience in our brain, our body cannot tell if that's quote unquote real or not. It still creates the same cascade of chemicals through our body 
And if that is anger or fear or a lower emotion, then that is going to create a certain chemical cascade in our body. And if it is gratitude, compassion, and love, it's going to create a different experience in our bodies. And so I am not going to choose to live in a mindset where I'm creating a literal, literal cascade of chemicals from my brain throughout my entire body that then just reinforces that lived experience. Sure. Does that make sense? Where it's kind of like a, it's a, it becomes a loop where it totally does. You're thinking and feeling brain, they work together and they reinforce each other. Yeah. I, I actually wonder about that sometimes when I'm upset about something and occasionally like, okay, am I really upset or am I upset because I feel like I'm supposed to be upset? Mm. but your body's going to kind of have the same reaction no matter what, if you think that that's the way that, that, you know, if you think that's the way that you feel, whether you feel it for valid reasons or not, your body's going to react to that feeling. Yeah. And you'll find valid reasons. And that's the whole point, right? Like when we're feeling a certain way, we can't really receive anything that's different than how we're feeling. Like if we're, if we're, you know, pissed off about something that's happening, we're going to see examples that make us justify, that help us feel justified in being pissed off about what's happening. It's not to say that there isn't a good reason to feel anger about things. Right. You know, I think that it is about, as you just said, also using the capacities that we have to stop and think, you know, is this something that I'm wanting to feel and am I channeling this emotion in the right way? Or am I stuck in a loop right now that, you know, I need to take this left turn out of? And I think you said it beautifully. Like you just, you got to catch yourself. We all have to catch ourselves. And that's not always easy to do. I can think in terms of my own depression, you know, I kind of go from this person doesn't care about me to nobody cares about me very quickly. Mm. And it's not always easy to catch yourself in the middle of that and go and, and go, okay, Mike, you're upset about this specific thing, but that's not the case all the time. You know, sometimes you just want to, your brain just wants to jump into the hole. Yeah. And that's not always helpful. Talking about kind of your history with depression, which I don't have a history of. So I honor that, you know, there is its own unique set of neurochemistry associated with that disease, particularly, and how difficult it can be to take something from, you know, a one-off instance, how easy it is sometimes for a one-off instance to turn into an everything kind of instance. Yeah. Is that your, what I was hearing yeah. you say? Your, your sense of, I don't want to say reality, maybe moderation kind of falls. It's like, okay, it goes from, I screwed something up at work to I'm going to get fired or, mm. you know, you, it just, it can be one specific instance of something happening instance of rejection or a mistake you made and it just depression just amplifies all of that in your head or for me it does i can't speak for everybody's experience with depression and turns it into an all or nothing scenario it's you know do you feel like there are parts of that mike for you that are specifically related to masculinity like as a trigger of some kind? I think so. I think feeling like feeling like I'm not supposed to feel certain things is definitely mm-hmm. masculinity related. I, I do think that, you know, as much as I can say that I have evolved over the years, there is definitely still a part of me that's like men don't blank. And, right. you know, I have to internally struggle with those feelings. And even if it's something as simple as reaching out to an, another man for support, or, you know, anything like that, there's always like a slight hesitation. Uh, the hesitation yeah. used to yeah. be more pronounced, but it, it still exists. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you offering those as, as examples because I've been thinking a lot about you know, just the patriarchy overall. And I know that sounds weird. I've been thinking about the patriarchy, but one of the things I've been doing with during the shelter in place time is reading books on masculinity. And it's been eye-opening. And the one that I started with was a book called The Evolved Masculine by Destin Garrick. I feel like someone has mentioned that book to me before I've not read it. Yeah. 
So it is really remarkable in a couple of ways. He, it's really well-written. He tells it an, an interesting story. And I think the story actually has a lot, I mean, it has a lot to do with masculinity for sure, but it also has a lot to do with like what we were talking about before about how we visualize and use, you know, tools like meditation to really figure out who we want to be in the world. And he has two really specific examples about dramatic shifts in personality from kind of who he grew up as into an intermediate step that he called the erotic rock star. Okay. And this was really about kind of, you know, being able to feel into his own sexuality as a male. And so he created this persona that he then recreated his personality to fill the persona and, and transformed, you know, his appearance transformed like his way of thinking from negative thoughts. You know, I'm not, I'm Greg. I'm not a guy that's worth anything. Nobody wants to listen to me into this like bigger than life presence. Nothing changed other than his own internal way of thinking and his habits of thinking. And that's a really, to me, a really powerful example, whether you want to be an erotic rock star or like what he called his next evolution was the evolved masculine. So he kind of did this twice in his life. And that's what the, the book is really about is how he did it and what, you know, his reflections are as it relates to evolving into his current presence. And it's just, it's a really well told story. And, you know, I feel like it does get to some of the aspects and there's a fair amount of, of content in there around male sexuality. And I can, you know, very much relate to a lot of what he shared as it relates to, you know, having to turn off our own feelings I mean, that's part of the patriarchy overall, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, really in terms of sexual experiences, like really having to like, having to imagine your grandmother playing baseball or something to distract yourself from what you might be feeling as a sensation during sex. You know, that's how we need to, that's how I was taught as taught. I'm going to use that in air quotes. That's how that was the conditioning that I received around how we're supposed to be able to last in order to satisfy a partner and you know it's it it was much more about you know try not to feel as much as you can yourself so that the other person can do all the feeling Mm. and as i shared before like i'm really trying to deprogram that mindset and the evolved masculine book was a great start in terms of getting me thinking about that but then i actually started to read a book called A Will to Change by Bell Hooks. Do you know that book? I know of Bell Hooks. I have not read that book either. Yeah, I again, got, like my reading really, list. really important stuff. And, you know, as we're all digging into deep, deep issues and going through this, like, you know, transformation process of shelter in place and, you know, all that kind of things, I, I would, uh, it's, it's an amazing set of resources because, it, you know, the Bell Hooks book really does dig in deeply to how the patriarchy doesn't work for anybody. And we've, you know, talked about that so many in so many different ways, even this evening, um, that, you know, again, it's eye-opening when you take a step back and say, yeah, you know, as a man, I've certainly benefit, benefited from the patriarchy. I'm not going to deny that. And at the same time, I don't want to perpetuate this as a system because it's caused me harm and I feel like it causes society a tremendous amount of harm. I feel like we program, continue to program men in our society with the wrong kinds of mindsets around aggression and competition are the only ways that we can be successful. And if you are not aggressive and if you're not, you know, competitive, then you know, your uh, insert blank of, 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 you know, slur of, sure. you know, some kind of pansy or some, 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 something like that. And, you know, that is still happening today. And, you know, these are not things in every household that people, you know, not every father is standing up saying these things, but it's that aspect of social programming that young boys continue to receive around, 
you know, you can't express emotions. You can't feel that way. You know, you need to be able to defend. And basically the only, the only emotion that you're allowed to show is anger as a boy and as a man. And to move beyond that and, you know, allow boys as we did with our boys, thankfully, to grow up in a, in a household where it is okay for, you know, you, for my, for my boys to hug each other. It's okay for me to hug them. I give them hugs all the time as 16 and 19 year old people. And you know what? That is healthy. I am their father and I refuse to subscribe to a paradigm that tells me that once my male gendered cisgendered kids reach a certain age that I'm no longer allowed to show them affection. Like, I feel like that's damaging. That hurts. That hurts me. It hurts them. Like why, why, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, you know, again, I don't deny that the patriarchy exists and that I have opportunities that other non-cis males have, but I don't want to continue to see that bullshit. Sure. So where, what was the point where you learned all of this stuff? Was this something that did you grow up having this? I mean, you've said that you didn't grow up having the same experience that your children are having with you as a parent. Like, when did this all, like, click for you? Well, it clicked for me in my relationship with Ginger. I mean, really, like, as what we talked about earlier, Mike, as a mirror for me, she wanted me to be my best self. And you know what? That takes sometimes, sometimes it takes hearing hard truths. (laughs) And I listened to a fuck ton, no, actually a metric fuck ton of (laughs) rants from Ginger over years about maleness and about her experience. And it was really, it could have been really easy for me to take every single one of those conversations personally, because, you know, she, it's, it's not her responsibility to preface everything by saying, you know, this isn't about you. I trust that if Ginger has something that she wants to share about me and my behavior personally, that she will direct it to me. She's not going to mince any words that way. So we have this foundation of direct and honest communication in that way. But yeah, you know, I heard a lot of uncomfortable truths about what her lived experience has been and continues to be and see, even as a polyamorous person, see you know, her experiences in relating to other men in many ways as being like continued, like disappointment after disappointment, because you know what? There are a lot of men out there that do not understand what it takes to support another human being emotionally beyond, you know, the immediate aspect. So, you know, to be more blunt, if you're in a partnership you know, sexual partnership as a polyamorous person, you know, you need to be able to bring a little bit more game than, than, than the occasional text, you know, you're in relationship with these, with this person. So ghosting is kind of a shitty thing to do. Oh, absolutely. And it's like, again, Mike, I can't even believe. And, you know, just men that Ginger's had in her life that I thought really got it. And then they just don't show up. Like they don't have any consistency. They're not able to find that gear that says, you know what? Yeah, I've had a tough day, but I'm going to let that go. And I'm going to you know, see who I can be in service to in my life. Because I know that when I'm in service as, and this is part of my masculinity, I know that when I am in service to others, then that does help feed me in energy. And so I'll find another gear to take the moment and communicate intentionally with people in my life that that I feel like you know that either might be reaching out and needing some help or some you know indication whether it's intuition to go back to our other conversation or um, you know just somebody comes to mind and so having intentional communications 
takes time and it takes a presence of mind and having intentional conversations takes time and a presence of mind. And, you know, just like we're doing tonight, like truly listening to each other, how many men do you know in your friend group or in your experience where you try to have a conversation of any depth or meaning and, you know, it doesn't go anywhere because, you know, they can't hang or they're, they're too lazy to, you know, keep the thoughts together or what? I'm not really sure, but it's like, you know, I don't want to have these communications with men. And I know Ginger hasn't want to have those communications with men where it's like, you know, in a polyamorous situation, if we're on a date and she's having a conversation with somebody, you know, if they're kind of doing the look around, like, you know, who else is here <laughs> that I might want to go talk to. Right. Like, you know, that's kind of a dicky thing. It's not a kind of a dicky thing. You know, it is a just, dicky thing. It's a, it's an immature masculine thing to do. Like, you know, bring some, let's say bring some game, but I don't mean to marginalize it. You know what I'm saying? Like, bring some focus. Show up as your best self. Yeah. Bring yeah. some focus. Yeah. I mean, I've, I don't know if I've ever been guilty of doing that on, in like a date scenario. I've certainly done that in social scenarios. I think it just kind of comes from a point of, of being overwhelmed. I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else in, in those situations, but it does. It, it A constant question that I have is, why is it so difficult for people, particularly men, to be emotionally honest? And I don't, that, I don't have an answer for that at all. But I am someone who really values the friendships that I have with my male friends. And I attempt, don't always succeed, to make sure that those relationships are open and honest and communicative and caring and and loving and some people really can't hang and it, i don't think it's a lazy thing so much as that it forces them to access emotions that they've been told for so long that they're not allowed to access with other yeah. men and that's where i feel like you know mike what you're saying before about kind of people being out of touch or not being able to be emotionally honest to me the source of that is if your connection to this broader range of emotions that you just described, if your connection as a man has atrophied to those kinds of emotions, then you're not being you know, emotionally dishonest as much as you are. You're just fucking ignorant because you, you know, you don't have any idea what's going on. And so how can you represent yourself, you know, tr truthfully to the world if you can't really even put, you know, a finger on exactly what this is, because this thing doesn't have a name because I haven't been allowed to feel it. I'm just out of touch and I don't have, you know, again, the kind of connection has atrophied, it's died off. And so, you know, I think that we need to be able to kind of work on cultivating that, recultivating that in just the way that you just described. What are ways that, I guess this is a two-part question. What are ways that people can realize that they need to access these emotions and then how do they actually do it? Well, I feel like for me, going back to what you shared before, the number one thing that I would look for is, you know, what are, your, what are the people in your life telling you? What are they explicitly telling you? And what are they maybe not explicitly, you know, what can you read between the lines? And so, you know, if, if, if your manifestation or my manifestation of being busy and overwhelmed all the time is that I'm an angry person, you know, and I just lash out at people and I do that at work and I come home. And the first thing I do when I come in the door is I, you know, I'm like, where's my dinner, whatever, you know, whatever I might be. And so, you know, if, if that's constantly happening, then what you might not hear, then you might not actually hear, you know, people might not tell you explicitly what, what you're doing, but, you know, pretty soon nobody's going to want to hang out with you anymore. And, you know, if you look around and you're like, you know, again, not a good example during shelter in place, but you know, <laughs> if, if you're at home by yourself on a Friday and all your buddies are like, you know, dude, you know, we're busy tonight, then, then your friends are telling you something. And that's kind of my point about, you know, they're, they can tell you explicitly or they can tell you implicitly. And I feel like, you know, that is the first thing is 
who are the loved ones, you know, your real family, your biological family, your chosen family, however that looks, what are those folks able to reflect back to you as it relates to how you think about that? And then the second thing I would say is, you know, that kind of, what do you do from that point going forward? I mean, I think that you have to ultimately be able to allow yourself, like this is not a foreign thing and your body knows how to feel these emotions. We ourselves in our frontal brain, in our thinking brain, need to be able to trust that it's okay to be vulnerable as a man, you know, as it relates to having a feeling that you don't know what to do with. Like, you know, because I, I know that the feelings that I had historically pushed down a lot were the ones was like, you know, well, this feeling, oh yeah, you know, I can definitely like, appreciate a certain, a positive emotion, but, you know, if there's something else and I don't know really how to resolve it and it's not, you know, there isn't a clear solution in my mind, then it was always safer for me to ignore that emotion and push it away. And I feel like, you know, part of that vulnerability issue, Mike, is that we don't always know the answer as a man in the moment and that's okay. And that will, you know, result in feelings of vulnerability. And, you know, if you or anybody listening wants to learn about vulnerability, then, you know, Brene Brown is the person about vulnerability and her YouTube stuff and her TED Talks are amazing and they are heart opening as it relates to how important it is for us. So that would be another resource is, you know, do some reading or thinking or surfing around, you know, how, like, watch the Brene Brown stuff, like read, read some things that, you know, f- cause you to tap into who you are as a person and then allow what's going to come up to come up and not, you know, and, and just be with it. Does that make sense? It I, I'm totally start, makes start sense. To talk really like super woo, but it's like, <laughs> it totally makes sense. I, it, it just like thinking back to my, I don't know if I want to say my older self or my younger self, because both of them kind of make sense depending on what sort of time you're using. Um, Just it's such a difficult wall to get over. And I say that, you know, for me as someone who has been out in one form or, or another, or at least, you know, in and out situationally, but kind of came to terms with, uh, you know, the sexuality aspect of it a long time ago, even as that, it's been difficult for me to sort of get over like that emotional wall. I can't imagine what it's like. Like, I'll, I'll actually reframe this and ask you a question. How much of that emotional wall or the not accessing emotions that are not considered masculine might, might, how much of that might have to do with sexuality? Do you think? I would say a lot. I feel like there is a lot of the patterned male behavior that is presenting in a way that is fitting into a very heteronormative mold. And I think anything outside of that immediately gets, you know, marginalized or brought back in, at least in my experiences growing up, like there was nobody that I could think of that got away, so to speak, with, you know, any kind of non-binary expression of their gender identity, for example. Like anybody who started to move in that direction immediately was called names and bullied and harassed. Not by me, but, you know, again, seeing that behavior happening. So the, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we're all being funneled into a certain definition of what a man needs to look like and how a man needs to behave. And that is, you know, athletic, that is aggressive, that is competitive. And if you are not those things and many other kind of things, then I feel like you know, the first thing that you're called is a fag or a sissy. So it is about sexuality and, you know, it is about not presenting in that stereotypical patterned way that 
that the patriarch is expecting. Yeah, I. That's always kind of rattled around in my head, and I'm not sure. I've often been very skittish when answering that question because I don't want to impose my own my own agenda on anyone. Mm-hmm. But just based on the things that I experience, the things that I see pretty often, it does seem like a lot of the people, <clears throat> a lot of the men that I know who do have this emotional wall up uh, have some kind of once if we get close, it turns out that they ultimately have some kind of hang up about about their sexuality, some like a, a blockage or, or inability to express a certain part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I would even take it. Let, let me kind of take it to a completely different circumstance and framework because you know, being openly um, non monogamous, consensually non monogamous person. We've had a lot of experiences that we've been able to have, like with the Swings That Takes Desire group, for example. And one of the key reasons that that group was started was because the resort, 51 other weeks out of the year, has a vibe that is you know, very much where male-male contact is frowned upon. Mm-hmm. You know, again, kind of this very you know, heteronormative herding behavior where it's like, you know, I can't express my sexuality in its full way if I'm a bisexual man. And I am not, by the way, so I don't want to claim that. But, you know, as a lot of men in swinger or open relationships would likely be if they were given full permission, they may be more interested in male-male contact or even exploring, hey, is this even my jam? Like, I'm on vacation, like, you know, I'm having a great time with my partner and we're having a great time together. They're having a great time. Like, you know, so it's like, why not have this be the opportunity where you're like, hey, you know, I've never really sucked a dick before. You know, I'd like to see what this is like. And I have sucked a dick before. So just to be very clear. So, you know, it is, you know, very important to, like, think about that and say, you know, why is this not a place where men can be completely free these 51 other weeks of the year to also explore their, their sexuality? And the reason I think, Mike, is just what you said, because, you know, even in, you know, more progressive circles, men have this, like, deep, deep fear of looking a certain way that questions their sexuality. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. (laughs) You, You've said it much more eloquently than I'd be able to express it, but I I agree with you 100%. It's a shame. I I feel like when when anything about someone's personality is repressed, it doesn't stay repressed, like it comes out. And when it's repressed for a long period of time, it comes out in a way that's maybe not necessarily not necessarily healthy right yeah so yeah, it's distorted somehow right yeah yeah, yeah. great so i don't know that's uh, an interesting thing i mean we could probably talk forever about that i'd like to thank ryan for sitting for this interview he's a testament to willpower for sure i also want to give a shout out to his wife ginger who's also a friend of mine and is a wonderful person uh, you can find out more about ginger and the prof by checking out either their podcasts life on the swing set and intellectual foreplay and by following them on Twitter. You'll be able to find Intellectual Foreplay and Life on the Swing Set just about anywhere that you find podcasts. Uh, They have a couple of different Twitter handles. You can find Ginger and Ryan together on Twitter at Intel Foreplay. That is I-N-T-E-L-F-O-R-E-P-L-A-Y. And you can find Ryan hanging solo on Twitter at Ginger and the Prof. That is G-I-N-G-E-R-N-T-H-E-P-R-O-F. You can also find Ryan Rockin' Solo on Instagram at Ryan, a.k.a. Prof, R-Y-A-N-A-K-A-P-R-O-F. You can't find me on Twitter, but you can find me on Facebook at Facebook.com slash DetoxPod. And you can find me on Instagram at It's Mike Joseph. Feel free to drop me a DM, say hello, suggest guests, give me uh, advice for the podcast, whatever you want to do. 
I am always willing to welcome feedback, be it positive, negative, or neutral. So uh, keep those comments and questions coming in. In light of Ryan talking about his brain injuries, I feel like it's only right that the charity that we pick for this week's episode be the Brain Injury Association of America. You can find them at www.biausa.com. Once again, that is biausa.com. And uh, that will do it for this particular episode of Detoxicity. Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I wish you continued health and happiness. Be well to yourselves. Be well to each other. Peace. Peace.